Hey, I just want to say, in face of everything that's going on in the world, and including the fact that we're all going to die eventually, hopefully later rather than sooner, good job making time for a podcast episode. And I am not being sarcastic. How do we get anything done in this life? Hey everybody, it's Ned Buskirk, your host for You're Going to Die the Podcast. Welcome, your creatively conscious mortality podcast. I am feeling overwhelmed <laughs> with life and having somewhat of a difficult time. And that has me feeling glad to just be doing this right now, talking to you, being honest. If you get anything from this podcast, hopefully you get me doing that. And it has me just wanting to get to the conversation. I guess there is a version of maybe even me feeling like I need what Jess and I talk about, this episode's guest, the death empath, me needing that conversation over me needing to figure it out and talk and give you answers and reasons and meaning and whys. I almost think about these things lately, something I learned in one of my cancer patient workshops this week, the idea of of seeing what's possible in others, how some of these cancer patients, some literally ill in bed from treatment, trying to heal from that, are seeing other people like travel around the world being alive on the other side of their hard, dark night of the soul. And I feel like Jess, this episode's guest, is a version of that for us. For me, what does it look like to still be here and to have made a life out of what hurts and what's hard. And I'm so grateful how easy it was to drop into a conversation with Jess. Like we were friends, and so we are. Just the first time we talked, it felt that way. So glad that this connection happened. And so glad that this conversation that instantly felt like there was no recording happening. We weren't doing a podcast. We were just familiar spirits arriving like a, hello, hey, missed ya. Tell me what's been going on. Yeah, I get it. I totally relate. Oh, that's awesome. Oh yeah, I need more of that. Yes, please, and thank you. And so I hope this conversation is a version of that for you, giving you something you need right now, something you came here to specifically get exactly the thing you know you need here. And then I would recommend just opening to the surprise of what you didn't know you needed and that you're about to receive from this episode's guest. Jess is an ancestral death doula, shadow empath, grief guide, and life coach who uses performing art, transformative speaking, storytelling, and content creation to alchemize grief, death, and loss of self. Her main mantras are your mortality is a reminder of what matters and death care is community care. She believes that integrating death and shadow helps garner kinder, softer humans that are in awe of their own lives. 
I hope you very much enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Jess Reese Mendeville, a.k.a. The Death Empath. Today's a feely kind of day. Well, it started yesterday. Full moons tend to get me a little kind of gravy, a mm-hmm. little, you know, grief inspired. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you do? Are you able to immediately channel that anywhere? I feel like one of the things I want to talk about is something I really relate to that I think maybe you have a experience of, which is getting things done when we're faced with like illness or depression or another like version of all that. Maybe like this is meaningless, hopeless. What the hell am I doing? But still needing to do it. Yeah. Uh, coping mechanisms, like mm-hmm. getting into creative work. So I'll be doing some skelly memes today about, you know, grieving with the moon. <laughs> so, yes. Some, you know, <laughs> fun little dark humor caricatures or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, is it, is there a version of times when I'm sure you're so deep in it, it's hard to get to that kind of creative expression? Actually, because I use it to help process, Mm. it's almost like my Mm -hmm. go-to. It kind of depends if it's more of a, like what kind of grief I'm going through. Mm -hmm. Because I literally will use all my coping mechanisms as tools. So I'll be like, all right, Netflix and grief, let's do this. And I'll just binge watch a show for three, four hours because that's what my grief is. My grief is like telling me to do, right? Mm -hmm. Guiding me towards that. So no, generally I don't, I don't ever feel super in the feels where I don't want to do any of my tools, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That feels important for me to hear. I feel like a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine yesterday was talking about feeling the sads. And I'm just so curious during those times for me, it's a little bit paralyzing and I just feel like I need to, source more humans in my life that know here's the activity for sure that's going to help move it a bit or give it some relief or even just give it some visibility that helps lighten it or release it some somewhat and telling them hey what do you do do you numb out do you do you disassociate and because i feel like so often at the end of the day i'm that's what i'm inclined towards is just consumption of food sweet treats and entertainment and instead of, oh, what does it mean to like make room for it actually? And especially to creatively engage with it. And this person said, well, I just played electric guitar for, you know, an hour and that helped. And so Mm -hmm. then hearing you share this version of it, like doing those activities, not only acknowledges that you're feeling that stuff, but it's a place to like take it and turn it into something else. And you just said it, just making room for it or Mm -hmm. giving it awareness is enough. Just mm-hmm. being like, okay, this is paralyzed and I'm in and I'm out. Yeah. That's it. Going, oh, that's what I need. Okay. Mm-hmm. And not trying to, um, I think the thing I learned when, because I've been chronically depressed my whole life. And what I learned is once I just kind of accepted that I'm in the sad, I'm like, okay, this is what I need right now. Mm-hmm. But when I fight it, when I used to fight it, I'd be there way longer. What mm-hmm. could have been three days of just kind of, couch potato snacking binge watching a show turns into two three weeks of what the hell's wrong with me mm-hmm. you know and even when I disassociate it's the same thing and what I realize is that sometimes I just 
want to observe myself. And I used content creation to really help me process and heal. And then at the same time, other people are like, I totally relate to that. Yeah. I was just dissociated for three months and I'm like, yeah, hey, welcome back. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that's so important, especially with the work you do and in a way I relate that I'm talking all the time about, well, you just got to make room to feel it. And in my own personal life, I'm not doing that enough, I don't think. And feeling like I'm in a stage of this is your chance. If you keep pushing this off, if you keep holding back, even if it doesn't work, it's still worth the like, just at the end of the day, don't eat sweet treats. Don't turn on the endless like Netflix uh, waterfall. Not that I won't have moments for some of that, but definitely thinking, Oh, what a curiosity to just say, okay, I'm, I'm probably going to be kind of sad tonight because of all the grief space maybe that I held during the day, but what will that be like? Like, how might it be helpful? What will it reveal that I didn't see before? Yeah. It's so important. And, but, you know, I want to add to that. Sometimes disconnecting and going and numbing out does help you process mm. your feelings, right? Like when I'm not in a good place, I just throw a random rom-com on and it gives me enough room and space to be in that fantasy world to be like, oh yeah, I'm really sad. I just like lost my friendship. And that's kind of like today it's an anniversary of that or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. And so there's also, there is some good to be had when you do kind of numb out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it, I also want to kind of to, to say that, that um, this is going to sound super weird. Mm-hmm. I learned good. to also schedule my, mm-hmm. my sads and my grief, mm-hmm. like giving me that mo- those like moments. All right. On Thursdays, I'm going to access and feel my feelings. And that's where I like came up with like happy hour death dancing on Fridays. Yes. Fridays, we're going to dance all our feelings out. So it's like scheduling a time that you're like, all right, I, I'm giving myself an opportunity. It's 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever it is, my Mm -hmm. coffee in the morning to just kind of go like, oh man, I'm feeling a little anxious. I'm feeling a little overwhelmed right now. And okay. I'm feeling it for five minutes. Okay. Okay. I'm done. You know, cause that's, it's really hard for people who don't, typically access their feelings or emotions are so Mm -hmm. used to pushing them aside to start even understanding what they feel like in the body or in the mind and to just kind of sit with them, whatever they may be for five minutes, I think Mm -hmm. sometimes is helpful. Yeah. The idea of scheduling, it feels really important, especially in a day and age or for probably a bunch of listeners that can relate to the, well, I don't even know how to make room for that. Well, how do you make room for any of the other stuff that's supposedly really important in your life? Well, just make make that hour you know exactly like it's waiting for you every thursday i'm gonna pencil this in (laughs) well yeah because now i do things like uh karaoke where i do like this kind of i'm gonna start this thing called grief sing-alongs where Mm. you do karaoke but it's like the songs that like you need to like get out of your system. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, whether it's like a crazy rock song. Yeah, Yeah. it's a crazy rock song or like a super soft like you know melodic ball- mm-hmm. ballad or something mm-hmm. whatever it may be but you're again the scheduling of the feelings doesn't necessarily have to be super serious mm-hmm. you can actually be like okay i'm gonna go karaoke and sing my feelings out i'm gonna go dance on this friday and dance dance all my feelings out yeah it's just learning to start accessing first and then you can feel later i also feel like with the dancing and um maybe you could share a little more about that kind of revelation of making that room and what that's been like, but knowing that partly what you needed in that space and maybe no other people need is some way to let the body move this stuff. Not like mm-hmm. the, I'm in a journal or talk it out with someone that you're specifically creating that space. Cause you know, the body needs it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so my background is uh, I was a performing artist for many, okay. many years and I went to school for dance and theater and musical theater. And I started my own school for underprivileged kids. And I just saw the incredible healing and power that just being able to move your body, especially when you're in a situation with underprivileged kids. I noticed a lot of them came from, you know, um, abuse backgrounds or parents that weren't you know, in the best place and addiction. And sometimes they couldn't speak because it was dangerous or they felt it would cause them harm to speak out. And so I gave them the outlet to like, okay, well, let's uh, pretend we're flamingos right now. Mm -hmm. What does flamingo look like? And (laughs) if we're going around the ground. And um, I started realizing that it was this way of being able to speak through the body and heal through the body where you didn't have to actually use words. Mm-hmm. And dance for me is my first language and um, it's an ancestral practice. You know, it makes me very sad when I open the dictionary and it's like definition of dance. It's like coming together to music and moving your body. I'm like, oh my God, it's much more than that. So much more. Yeah, to me, it's, you know, like our, our the, all of our ancestors or predecessors, they would move to connect to community, to each other, to spirit, to God, to um, grieve and console one another. And, um, you know, that's where we get trance dancing from ecstatic dancing, shamanic dancing. And so I put all that knowledge and, and, um, experience into my death work because, mm-hmm. you know, I was doing a lot of guidance calls with people and I was realizing, you know, sometimes words just aren't big enough. Sometimes words just can't convey. And I speak, I speak two languages. So I speak Spanish as well. And I'm like, there are even words in Spanish that English doesn't have a hold on, you know? And I'm just like, how do you, there's one of my favorite words is desahogar in Spanish, which means to, like, if you're doing it to the direct translation, it needs to undrown, undrown oneself. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like to vent, to purge, to let it all out. But there's no real English equivalent to that. Mm-hmm. But in movement, um, and you can see this like with movement therapy, I also do movement meditations. You get to tap into that like essence of like uh, unpurging and just, mm-hmm. blah, you know, mm-hmm. and our body does have a knowing that our minds and our spirits don't necessarily always have. Mm-hmm. I love that. I just talked to Alexis Pauline Gums, just kind of noticing the connections here, but she's an author among many other things, but her book is undrowned and even so much of what the book's about is about like going deeper. And she writes about sourcing marine mammal wildlife to inspire ways we can be in our lives, like listening holding space, breathing, things like that. But the undrowned, like to undrown yourself, what's the word again? Desahogar. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. It's only mm-hmm. favorite I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can we go back to, I wonder if your trajectory, even from performance art too, is like maybe your inclination to do that when you were younger, somehow crossed over into more healing work and this eventually becoming the death empath. Um, I'm wondering about that journey or if there's some something around when there was a time when you kept putting off the like hard stuff, the dark parts like you described for months and being like, why do I still feel this way? Like if there was a version of rock bottom that led to you being like, this is a new path and has led to this work. I'm just wondering if you can share a little bit of that story. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. Uh, I've, I've, enc- I've come to realize that I'm kind of, mm, I'm going to say backwards for lack of a better word. I started off not wanting to live. 
I am a you know survivor of child abuse, sexual mm-hmm. abuse. Mm-hmm. So by the time I was nine, everything became dark mm-hmm. and I didn't want to live anymore. And so I've spent 20 plus years trying to figure out how to be here. Mm-hmm. And so I've romanticized death. I have been in close proximity and calling it in, wanting death to be um, near me always. And so I have this like kinship with death and dark and shadow. And I really know what it's like being in there. I find comfort in it because most of my life was that. And so I never really hit a rock bottom. I kind of started mm, off that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And then I learned to alchemize the dark parts. I realized I, there's so much power in understanding this side of uh, our humanity mm-hmm. and being able to support others in a very similar journey. People who have hit rock bottom, more in the abyss, who have understood like multiple deaths, energetic, living, physical deaths, and all the compounded grief and feeling like they have no one to really like understand them or relate to them. And then I feel like I can kind of come in there and be like, hey, I'm not afraid of this place. I'll sit with you. And we can talk about whatever you need and can be weird and move and sing and whatever calls to you. And no matter what you tell me, no matter what you say to me, I'm not going to shy away. I'm not going to criticize you or pass judgment because I have seen a lot of that darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I and I I kind of just embrace where people are. And that's what got, drew me to finding a way to... Um, really create flow in with my shadow self and I integrated it and um, became the death empath, you know, mm-hmm. death work and shadow work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Thanks so I started off. Yeah. I started yeah. off a you're real like, right, you're right. <laughs> little kid and I was like, okay. Oh. Is, yeah. And it took me, I, I mean, I had a mask for so long. Mm. And that's the stuff that I mean, when I, before I leaned into all my work, I was constantly trying to, push away the dark, the depression, the sad, and and pretend like I was okay all the time. It was so exhausting. People always saw right through it. And I was bullied anyway. And mm-hmm. I was feathered anyway. And so I was like, you know what? I'd rather love myself or at least like myself and everything that I am than continue to try to be this thing that no one accepts anyway. Oh yeah, right. So I'm going to lean into the crazy and the mm. super odd. And I literally, my life started changing once I started being that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have elders or people in your life that you can name um, and share with us right now what what their influence was that helped during that time or were carriers of a torch that somehow light your flame during that stretch? Anybody like that or since? No, I, mm. I mean, I have family members that try to support or try to understand, but they just, it's really, really difficult to understand that level of trauma or that specific trauma, unless you've gone through it. And for the most part, um, adults had a really hard time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went from being this very vibrant and uh, sweet, kind child full of life and everything. I was in awe of everything to kind of just complete opposite. Mm -hmm. Uh, My whole essence was taken from me. So I was numb and moody and nothing and and suicidal from that point forward. So, Mm -hmm. um, no, what I there's that thing that's been going around Instagram and TikTok where it's like you you were looking for someone to save you your whole life. Little did you know it was going to be you. And mm-hmm. so I really do believe that a version of me, my highest self, whatever it may be, 
kind of held me through that. But I also give a lot of credit. I did a lot of inner child work and inner teenage work. I'm working on inner adolescent, I mean, young adult work now. And Sweet. I have to give my little inner being, little Jess, a lot of credit. Well, hell yeah, she, yeah, for sure. She was navigating a space that was like, you couldn't trust adults. Everything was really scary. I li- I was kind of in a, dis- I was in dysfunctional upbringing um, with a mom, a single parent, lots of kids. And, and I just give her a lot of kudos and I'm just constantly like, man, you're super cool. Like I <laughs> champion yeah. you a thousand percent. And mm-hmm. um, I've done certain meditations where it's like timeline jumping and going back and holding myself through all of that. And unfortunately, no, I, I you know, when I got to college, it was a little more, um, there's a little more understanding when it came to being an artist, a, a darker shadow artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was still, I had a, I, I was really misunderstood for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the death space also didn't totally embrace me in the beginning either. But I mean, do you, which do, is, do, do you mean like just doing it or do you mean like the community that do it? The community. Mm-hmm. Because I was coming into a place where, um, you know, that duel was kind of new and black doula was mm-hmm. a new concepts mm-hmm. and, um, but who did really embrace me were the witches. It was mm-hmm. this spiritual metaphysical community it was like, yeah, come mm-hmm. on in. And um, curanderas and they were just, had it not been for a few key people in the beginning of the death empath, because I'm going to turn three in April. Mm-hmm. I would have been, I think, still a little lost in who, in my becoming. Like mm-hmm. I'm pretty solid in who I am right now. And I really love my work and how I'm doing and how I express it. Had I not been embraced by that, which mm-hmm. spiritual community, it would have been different. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's the first time I really started feeling seen mm-hmm. like in my whole life. Yeah. Because even as an adult, I used work addiction to hide all these things about me, my chronic depression and uh, the neurodivergent, the neuro- neurodivergent aspects of me. And um I didn't have to do any of that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, coming into the space. I was like, this is really rad. I am. Yeah. <laughs> you guys just accept all of me. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's cool. Do you know Amanda Yates Garcia, the Oracle of Los Angeles? No, I don't. Well, it's not really, it doesn't matter as much as she's a witch. And I definitely recommend you connecting up, but there's already so much that I was listening to with you and feeling a connection to a lot of what I just talked to her like two days ago for the podcast. And one of the things that I feel like you've described a version of already that maybe the witch community um, could see, you know, and, and receive is the underworld that you came from this idea that, you know, your, your own witchiness starts with being there, like you, like you said, like the rock bottom of it. And then somehow coming back and not in sort of your traditional ways, or at least in our culture's ways of what it means to get a healer and get an influence of a healer. Um, but to come back from that dark and do what you do now and how visibly you would be for a community of witches that know that path, you know, and that's like how they might describe it, at least even just with this one conversation a couple of days ago, it's a version of what you shared, you know, what led to her being a witch in, in the world, doing what she does, 
you know? Yeah. I'm telling you, witches are just pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then I, 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 went into, I went into my own discovery of, you know, um, practicing brujería, my own lineage of it, my ancestral like connection to curanderismo, why I'm in training to become a shaman, you know, a Mexican shaman. It's mm-hmm. like all of that was so accepted and so embraced. And during one of the hardest times, I think, for a lot of us the, during the pandemic, like mm-hmm. I was in a community of people that were incredibly resourceful and a lot of community care was involved and we we're constantly checking out on each other. And it was a beautiful thing to be so supportive in a way I had never been supported before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. I love that. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm connecting another thing I talked about with Amanda that I know you want to make a little room to talk about, which is the ancestral kind of conversation. What does it mean to be in that side of death and how does it influence your work or how does it influence healing? Um, Whatever way you want to take it. I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear more about that um, from your, from your death empath work. Yeah. So I also personally, you know, like wondering Uh, maybe the original version of it is the ancestral influence of surviving the dark, knowing for sure, by the way, I wanted to say this, that you having come from that in a time where I feel like young adults, so glad, thank you for that work and, and leaning into that community because of how desperate it feels for our youth, I think more than ever to like grow up and find meaning and find like a life out of darkness and find belonging and connectedness and healing out of trauma and living, you know, I don't need to say more than that, but I just want to say thanks for, for that, you know, how important it is for you to be someone who has come back from what you lived through, who can help that community, you know, feels huge. I mean, thank you. I'm receiving that Mm. very deeply because it does, you know, mean a lot to me. Um, And I'm hoping to just reach as many like young versions of myself as possible, right? Because I see myself so much in um, a lot of kids now who, because our suicide rates are going up like exponentially. Mm -hmm. And um, especially during the pandemic and uh, young kids, nine Mm -hmm. to 15 years old. And, uh, you know, femme presenting peoples too. um, It's, 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 there's a lot there. And, And I don't want people to feel like, like they are alone. And I I don't, I don't even talk about, Hey, you know, one day you'll be this or one day you'll be that. It's literally like in this moment of despair, even if it means that you won't be here tomorrow, I don't want you to be alone. Mm-hmm. And that's what a death will is. Anyway, mm-hmm. we people who are, well, part of our yeah. work is we sit with people who are actually passing. Um, but it's not up to me to judge whether or not it's their choice of mm-hmm. wanting to kind of, leave this realm um i'm just there to just hold space and help them feel supported through it and go man yeah like and this is how i kind of explain it to people in general where it's like just imagine you're in so much torment so much suffering that you don't see any way out your place is on fire all the windows are covered and you literally are like get me out of this place and it's literally your own mind it's Mm -hmm. your own your own inner space and now imagine you have someone who kind of seems to teleport in somehow and is just sitting there with you. And it's like, look, I validate this for you. Holy, 
holy hell, this is, this is a lot of torment, a lot of suffering. And uh, I acknowledge that this is real. This is real. And I believe you. Hey, this is specifically for you Apple Podcast listeners. We are trying to reach a goal. Our current goal is 200 ratings on Apple Podcasts. If you could just take a moment to help us reach that goal, it would mean so much, and I promise it will take less time than it takes you to listen to me talk about it. All you have to do is go into your app right now and scroll to the place where you can rate and review the show and click how many stars you think the show is worth. And that's it, you've done it. And you helped us, and by the way, our nonprofit, a 501c3 nonprofit, with all the things we do in the world. Supporting the podcast supports all of that. And if you want to do more than choose how many stars the show is worth, you can leave some words of acknowledgement, let us know what the show means to you. And by the way, if you do leave us some words of acknowledgement, we might read your words on an episode of the show. Why does this matter so much? Why are we talking constantly about rating and reviewing the show? And this goes for all of you using all your different apps. If you can rate and review the show, please do. And here's why. I bet you know at least one billion other people in your life who started a podcast during the pandemic. It's a highly competitive market. We're still here. We're not going anywhere. But to get people to listen to the show, one of the ways we do that is by measurably proving that we matter to other community. And one of those ways that we prove that is by how many people have rated and reviewed our show. It lets people know in that way that we're here and we matter. And so know that you taking a few seconds of time helps us reach more audience. And then the other reason why it matters is because the guests we have here on the show, it is one of the few ways they can actually go and do their own research to find out if the show is doing well, if it matters, and if the show is worth their time. So I'm just going to be real upfront about that. If you want us to have more and more amazing human beings, you rating and reviewing the show in the most generous way possible will help achieve that goal. So thanks for being on the You're Going to Die podcast team. If you rated and reviewed us already, thank you very much. If you haven't yet, go do it now. I'm not here to offer a solution or an exit plan. I'm here to just be like, I a thousand percent believe you and validate this for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, damn, this is bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's, again, being someone who has, you know, attempted suicide a few times, who's had suicide ideation to this day Mm -hmm. and has learned to manage and cope. And I just go back to being that, 13 year old kid again, that 15 year old mm-hmm. kid, that 21 year old kid who's just like, I just needed someone to tell me that my life experience was so bad that this makes sense. It makes yeah. sense that you don't want to be here. Totally. I, under, I, I understand. Damn, mm-hmm. I understand. Mm-hmm. And that would have helped me so much mm-hmm. because I just felt like there was something wrong with me the whole time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get past this? 
those aren't things that are easy. You're not able to get past. I mean, even ever I've been in therapy for 20 plus years. You know, I've, I have therapists now, life coach, you know, I have people on call all the time to this day because it takes so much support. I've gone through grief programs and group counseling, and I've gone through so many things, retreats and self-help just to get me to the place I am now. So now imagine you're a 13 year old kid with no resources mm. and you're looking to adults to like help you navigate this. Cause that's what adults are supposed to be here for. And not one of them can just be like, wow, life is really bad for you. And you're so young. And I, I totally understand. I get it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't really have that. Um, until, you know, much later in life. Mm. So I found people who were like trauma informed and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that makes sense. Um, to bring it back to the ancestral um, lineage and and being in dialogue with our dad, and and you could be like, that's not what I mean. So correct me, but I'm I am wondering if there's a way you feel like um, your work in that context is there. I keep saying like, who helped you? I know, and you'd be yeah, like, dude, yeah. I told you it was me. I did it <laughs> myself. Stop asking me. But I'm also like, do you think about having been helped also during those dark times by some part of your lineage or by starting to be in dialogue with your ancestors. Um, and if not, then like I heard you say, you really felt like you needed to, that little 13 year old needed to figure it out, you know, and, and survive and move forward. I get that. And so then maybe not, maybe later, when did you start doing the like, Oh, this is a conversation I need to be having this ancestral um, dialogue. That's actually really fascinating um, to be able to look at it that way. Uh, there was always something there with me present in mm-hmm. a kind of spiritual energetic form when I look back. Whether it was a version of myself or an ancestor or guardian angel, I, I hadn't been able to tap into that beyond mm-hmm. it being me. And then um, when it comes to my more ancestral practice, it's the reconnecting. So I have Yaki and Mayo lineage. So my grandmother was you know, indigenous. Um, and she, I always called her like a kitchen witch because she was always making like tinctures and herbs. We got to get into that. I know there's yeah. gonna be some talk about death crafting and cooking, but um, yeah. Cause yeah. I mean, that's kind of where it started. Um, and she was the matriarch of our family. And I do this whole, like, cause I do speaking and she's like a part of my story. Cause she's mm-hmm. the first person I actually, she was my first client mm-hmm. <laughs> I actually sat with. So it was, it was, it's always definitely been a calling. Um, I know that now because it all kind of come, has come together and looking back on it, I'm like, Oh, I was, I was definitely guided towards this work and given what I went through, but the ancestral stuff is more, um, in my work currently, as in I've Got tapped it. in, in the last few years, really tapped in to hearing, you know, my bloodline, my lineage, the, the source of energy that's channeled in because although death dual is a new term, but being a death care, a death guide is part of us as human beings. And then there's always, you know, whether it's a high priestess or high priest or someone who is, you know, guiding the village or the, the group of people into ceremony and rites of passage. And so my work is more bringing ritual and ceremony and sacredness back into the things that we do, but not in a serious fashion although it is serious but making it more accessible where it's like haha you're karaoke with me but this is called you know grief singing and it's actually a way to connect with your ancestors Mm -hmm. gotcha you know Mm -hmm. or death dancing it's those are ancestral practices yes 
somatic experiencing, breath work, those are all ancestral practices. And so it's more about that, bringing more reverence and honor to our work, whether you're even using plant medicine, um, that sitting, all of it, just bringing mm-hmm. that, those, that sacredness back into the fold. Did you have a moment um, a few years ago that was your realization of that or your sudden compulsion towards that? Or I'm thinking like coming into the witch community for sure, it would have been a element yeah. that you would have got from, from that. Oh I yeah. yeah. I'm telling you, everyone needs to be embraced by the witch uh-huh. community. Hell yeah. So much <laughs> self-discovery happens because there's just so much of everything. You have people who are, you know, doing tarot or doing your uh, natal chart or doing um, palm reading, tea leaves. Beyond that, you start you start encountering curanderas who are healers, but then the types of healers are hundreds of different types of healers. You have physical healers and la platica, the people who can talk to you. And mm-hmm. it, it just it opens up this whole world of self-actualization mm-hmm. and um, self-discovery. And really that's where, you, like I said, I was so embraced. I was finally able to just like let my hair down and be like, all right, so these mm-hmm. are playing this is where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And just dialoguing, yeah, having, you know, conversations with people about things and then being curious. Who are you? What are you about? What's the death mm-hmm. empath? And I had a couple of coaches too that helped me realize I was an intuitive, you know, get into my work as an empath. And um, he, it was just all kind of snowballed from there. Mm-hmm. And, and then I was also looking for, for people who were similar to me and um, discovering Brujeria and then realizing, oh, my grandmother was a kitchen witch. Oh, that's yeah. right. And then my dad has this like lineage of, of healers too. And yeah, so it all came from just stepping into that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about your grandma and, and the influence of like crafting, cooking, um, kitchen witch. Um, yeah. Tell me about that and sort of where it has you in the world in, in that particular way. So this woman cocked me up because she did not really like me that much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like one of 80 first cousins. Oh my gosh. Exactly. She's like, yeah. a mate, she's like the matriarch of like 200 plus of us. Holy um, crap. Yeah. So she had to just be like on it. She had 11 of her own children, uh, took on, I believe three additional children. So she was raising 14 and they were raised. My mom was raised out like in a farm. And so farm life, like, one mm-hmm. room, dirt floors, no glass in the windows, just holes. Like there was no doors, like a curtain, you know, in poverty, my mom would have to like jump into canals and go um, fishing for freshwater mussels. And so that kind of lifestyle where like a homesteader, like you know how to set bones and kill chickens with your bare hands. <laughs> and So my grandmother would do a lot of healing with plants. Cause again, that indigenous, herbalism was what she was raised with as well and when they came to the states my grandmother went from being this like farm person to I remember they lived in this like it was this little community where it was like a one bedroom single story kind of house um for I think underprivileged people or you know poverty level and she was still doing all her things. She'd like dry her meat on clotheslines in the backyard, make her cheese. Like you'd walk in on the patio, there's like fresh cheese being made. Sometimes like chicks or chickens in the back. It was just still rural, but in a more suburban area. Um, and whenever we were sick, she'd still make her like herbal tinctures and her bees. And I just always remember it smelled like mint and bay leaf. And so... Um, I 
get this kind of call to get into death work. Um, and because we're talking about my grandmother, when my husband's grandmother died. So in my family, culturally, you don't really leave people to die on their own. And I had no idea this was a thing and I'm not passing any judgment. I'm just kind of recounting my story. Right. So, um, my husband's grandmother, they get a phone call that she's, she's in a rehab out, a rehabilitation center, hospital center. And, uh, she has a few hours until she's, pa- you know, she's going to pass away. And so I grab all my things and I'm waiting by the door and like 10 minutes pass by. Finally, I'm like, Hey, what's going on? And my husband's like, my family already said their goodbyes. And I was so shocked that I didn't really hear what he said. And I was like, wait, I'm sorry, what? And he's like, yeah, my family already said goodbye. And I just, I didn't know what to do. I knew how to process that we weren't going to go say goodbye because I come from a family that death is not shielded from us. My first experience with death was my grandfather's funeral. I was seven and I was dressed in this like pastel yellow dress with ruffles and lace because that was his favorite color. I went to the hospital after he had a stroke. I was informed that, you know, he had a heart attack. Like I was very present with the whole kind of end of life process. And then I had a cousin pass away when he was nine and another cousin when he was 12. And so even child death. And so not shielded at all. And uh, we would, it was very common for us to go to the hospital rooms and be with our even just ill family members. Um, so this was a shock. I was like, uh, I don't. And so I sat down and I was like, people die alone? Question mark. Like, like honestly, because I didn't realize and all this. Wait, 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 <laughs> Jess, do you mean like, did you Google it or? Yes, <laughs> I Googled. <laughs> That's I, how you're like, what is going on? This is not, yeah, it's out of your yeah, realm of, yeah, it was totally. Completely. It, it was one of the, it was, it was a situation where it's like, I was this many years old when I realized that this was actually pretty common in like nursing homes and the data and the percentages. And I was blown away and really heartbroken. Um, and then these other terms started coming up, death midwife, death companion. And I was like, how do I volunteer to sit with people who are, you know, actively passing and all these programs. And that's when I discovered this um, program called ANELDA, this association and the International End of Life Dual Association. Yes, I know of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, their next training was in Wisconsin. I was like, decided, okay, I'm going to fundraise to get this, you know, my ticket to go to Anelda and get my training and visit Wisconsin. I've never been to Madison. It's gonna be great. Um, and then, and it was a calling. It was intense. I was like, this is so weird. At this moment in time, I have like a full-fledged event production business. I am busy all the time. And all of a sudden I'm considering, well, I'm going to be a volunteer because again, I remember in the back of my mind, there's this really dark death obsessed little kid. Yeah. Close to death. You know, maybe this will help me. Mm. I thought it was going to be like a scary straight program, to be honest. Like on my Mm. sub, on a subconscious level, I was like, well, maybe if I'm near death all the time, I won't want to die. I don't want to kill myself. And um, little did I know that three months later, I would be at my own grandmother's bedside. And uh, guiding my elders, uh, these women that would never have let me in to their space because it's, you know, again, being Mexican, your elders are your elders and they're on a different level. And, you know, um, they allowed me into that space to guide them and hold them. And it was 
powerful, cosmic. Uh, I felt like I was in a different dimension, like time stood still. And um, my grandmother passed away. I was in her bed. She was in my arms and she took her last breath as I was holding her. And I felt like an angel of death. <laughs> my immediate reaction was like, I killed my grandmother. Uh, this is weird. Um you know, because I was administering well, her morphine. <laughs> well, yeah, but also I just feel like when you're holding the dying yeah. well enough, there's permission there too, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a way that, that, that you were responsible for it in that way. And I imagine in the first time, you know. Listen, Ned, I know that now. <laughs> yeah, right, back then, yeah. And I was like, I killed my grandmother. Yeah. I killed my abuelita. Oh my God, I'm never going to hear the end of this. <laughs> oh my yeah, gosh. marked for life. Um, but that only came from you. I mean, you didn't have any sense anybody else was feeling that way or. Uh, yeah, it mostly uh, came from me. I did have an aunt or two that were like, please stop giving her drugs. Mm. Like, normal. You know, now that I, I've done this work long enough, and I listen to, you know, hospice nurse Penny and, like, mm -hmm. and uh, other hospice nurses where that's pretty common with family members that they, they kind of don't really fully understand. Um, morphine or azepam anti-anxiety meds and things of that nature in end of life because they think that you know you're not allowing them to be awake and present and there may be a chance for them not to die and so there's this whole and that's why we're having these conversations about death and dying right so people start understanding the death space that liminal space that the body's preparing the past that it's gearing up it's getting ready and it can be very painful you know and um the natural response of the body is to fight and is to, you know, um, so there's, there's all that. Uh, so yeah, I didn't have an aunt or two that were like, stop giving my mother drugs. You're killing her. Um, you know, I would like her to wake back up and I just kind of like, Oh my God. And that's, that's when I, I know it's, it was a lot. Um, and that's when I kind of decided to give them more of the responsibility of, you know, kind of delegating amongst themselves and, taking turns giving her medication. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, and this is where that whole conversation about a good death comes in as well. I had to leave at one point. It was Christmas Eve. And um, I, again, I, that was my first time really death sitting with someone. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to give them time alone with their mother because she was getting very close. The rigor mortis was there, the modeling. And... Um, you know, I was like, I'm going to help my mom and get all the gifts together and do the tamales. And um, yeah, so I was gone for about five hours. But I, so this is the really amazing thing that happens when you're working with people in end of life who are actually passing. At least for me and my experience and other doulas that I've talked to, death doulas, there's an energetic exchange that starts happening with the people that you're sitting with and you sense them. And again, I'm an intuitive. So on top of that highly sensitive person, I sense that energy and that connection with people in general so I was hearing my grandmother call out to me but the hearing felt physical and energetic and the longer I was gone the more desperate it became and the more almost screaming and yelling to come back and when I came back I was shaking and like very anxious to get back in the house and I was hit with this like it felt like this heat and it was pain and Unfortunately, my grandmother was covered in a really heavy blanket, a really heavy Mexican blanket. Um, she had not been given her medication, her morphine or lorazepam for hours since I'd been gone. So I came, walked into a state of my grandmother being desperate and in pain and not being able to no longer grimace and, 
you know, they couldn't check her heart rate because of the rigor mortis. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And that's when I stepped in, took my boots off and climbed in the bed with her and gave her morphine and, and started giving her permission to release and let go. And I told her, I'm sorry I left. I'm sorry I'm gone. I was gone for so long. I'm here now. Um, I'm holding you. You can rest. You can relax now. It's okay to go. And within 20 minutes, my grandmother passed away. Wow. So. Oh my gosh, Jess. Yeah. I mean, rite of passage kind of, you know, because I know you're saying then you didn't know, you know, the guilt or whatever, uh, trying to figure all that out. But knowing that the first time when we cross over those thresholds into like what this offered in the next stage of your life or whatever, um, would be complicated, (laughs) you know, that it would have also like guilt or is this, is this what I'm supposed to do? You know, like not knowing in the face of so many people not doing it that way, you know, and not understanding and not paying attention or listening or hearing, you know, like your grandma. Yeah. Um, So yeah, the guilt was short lived. Mm-hmm. Because two weeks later, out of I'm in traffic driving back from a client meeting, I just start bawling, tears flowing down my face. Oh my god, here it is! I'm processing the loss of my grandmother, and all of a sudden, I was there was this like warmth, this glow that kind of came over me, and I realized that with my grandmother's last breath, this like missing piece finally clicked in the death work that is now the death empath which is I get to use my ability to be in really hard, dark, deep, devastating places and shift it into a more cosmic transitional space of like nurturing and love and being able to support someone in any kind of space that's similar to that. That's what my grandmother gave me. And that's why I was called to do the training. I believe she's the one who's like, I don't like you that much, but I know you're, you're, you're probably the best suited for this. I love, I love, I love that. That's part of the background. Like the first thing you say when you tell this story is, so she didn't really like me. (laughs) I'm telling you when it comes to like Latinx families and I'm going to tell you, Mm -hmm. there's always like your favorites, especially there's that many grandbabies. You know, and I wasn't the lightest one. There's colorism also involved. I wasn't the lightest one. I was odd. Uh, I had all these these problems and issues, right? Because of what had happened to me, and um, I was kind of damaged goods in her eyes. Mm-hmm. In her eyes, and so um, yeah, she was one, and me. We could cut this piece out too if you don't want to include it. But I'm wondering too if if what you represented was for her really if there was an element of like, I can't face this or I'm responsible for what happened or again, we don't need to take that. We don't need to go that direction right now if you don't want to, but I'm just kind of honestly, that's intuitively some of that was coming up as I was saying it. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you brought that up. Mm -hmm. You picked up on that too. Um, There must've been, Mm -hmm. Uh, she knew her son, which was the person that, you know, Mm -hmm. trespassed against me. Mm -hmm. And I think she, she recognized it somehow, even on that, maternal unconscious yeah Mm -hmm. and because i had shifted so greatly Mm -hmm. and um there yeah i mean oh my gosh jess i mean like to be there with her i understand the familial responsibility and this obvious like inclination to doing this work and that being a one of the beginnings 
I'm just feeling a lot of emotion thinking. I don't know. Like I'm wondering about the healing that offered you through to that stuff, you know, like you were with the mother of the person who, you know, Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. No, I, and I completely am feeling and receiving everything that you're <laughs> feeling now too, because mm. it's, it's massive for mm. me. It was that moment was life-changing. Mm it put everything into this perspective that I now live in and exist in. Mm-hmm. And I say like in my whole life, I was trying to put back together all those shattered pieces of myself. And she was able to, with her dying breath, mm-hmm. shift everything into this, this, I don't, like unlocking a part of her within me, this like strength, this, this, this cosmic understanding of like, look, you've, you've been through held him back and I want to give you that last piece of me. Yeah. Like an alchemy or, or, or yeah. something. And then yeah. I'm this is not, you're going to be, this is going to be annoying, but, but I'm like <laughs> the recipe, the last ingredient, uh, no, of the recipe. That's, ex- <laughs> okay. that's exactly what it feels I'm making, like. This is me like bring it back to the kitchen, but I don't, I'm yeah. not ready to go there, but I just want to, yeah. Yeah, the, it did. I say it, it felt like that last mm. puzzle piece, like mm-hmm. activated DNA, that ancestral understanding of everything and just mm-hmm. um like throwing it into i keep saying the cosmos because that's what it felt like it felt like i was thrown back into the cosmos and my dna was reorganized and put back into like a, this is what you are this is what you've always been and and you were lost for so long and i am forever grateful for that moment way to connect to Jess. Thank you, Jess, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for such a friendly, fun, connected, meaningful conversation. If you want to connect to Jess, the death empath, all the links as usual in the show notes, definitely follow them on Instagram for happy hour death dancing happening once a month and TikTok for uh, lives, lives. I actually don't know which way to say that, but I think maybe Jess would be fine with both fitting for the work she does and the conversation we had. Also, Shadow and Death School launches in April for the Death Empath's third year anniversary, a school to help you integrate your shadow self, honor the past parts of you, and cultivate your becoming. Again, I'll link you all up in the show notes. Nick Jaina, how are you? I could use some of that shadow work. I was just talking to somebody about doing that work. Um, tell me what you think it is. <laughs> no, this isn't a test, but I'm like, you get I kind of want to hear. <laughs> you get a flashlight. You make Abraham Lincoln with your fingers. No, my uh, my understanding of it is uh, it's really easy to hate the parts of yourself mm. that create frustration or negativity in your life. But 
incorporating the shadow parts means seeing those as the flip side of a coin of positive traits that you really like and cultivate and, and reconciling that, that those are two sides of the coin mm-hmm. and, um, feed, you know, like for, for me, for example, like I'm a very sensitive person emotionally, uh, and physically mm-hmm. there are many moments while traveling, I eat the wrong food. I get ill. I'm no fun at, at a dinner party. Everyone thinks I'm a jerk cause I'm like <laughs> feeling frail, you know, and I'm cursing myself and my, my sensitive body, but mm-hmm. a shadow work acceptance of that would be, I'm, I'm only here at this, whatever show uh, residency or something because of my sensitivity, being an artist, my ability to connect, to be a live wire for the world, you know? Um, and so it just means accepting that those are two parts of it and not wishing one of those away, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, like, I don't know if you caught that, but that wolves, you know, the feeding yeah, yeah. both wolves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for those of you that don't know the story, I feel like by now everyone's seen a meme slash heard it somehow in a, a class about spirituality, but just, I think actually we talk about it, Josiah Johnson it's, and I. It's the title episode. of the Josiah mm-hmm. Johnson right. episode. Yeah. Because yeah. he mentions that. That's right. Um, the good wolf, the bad wolf, the shadow wolf, the light wolf, but that this might be a version of feeding both, that there's not like one wolf that's most important and kill off the other, but actually integrate or make room for or learn from both. Uh, yeah. This is good to talk about both because of the one dinner we had where you were a real a-hole. And now I'm like, oh, it's because of, <laughs> it's because of Nick's, Nick's shadow wolf. And... <laughs> <laughs> and, and I want to stick with this, uh, conversation of you and your sensitive bits. Um, cool. I think that was well said. And I actually wasn't as close to what that work would be for Jess as I am now. So thanks for that. But I want to talk about your, unless you have anything to add about the shadow work. No, just to emphasize, I like the, it's just my own understanding. My image mm-hmm. is two sides of a coin. Cause you can't, file off one side of the coin. You can't eliminate it. You know, mm, like it's part of it. Good. And just yeah. that understanding that like, this is what you signed up for mm-hmm. or, or maybe you didn't actually, but like <laughs> in some yeah. cosmic way, like you entered into this life Thrust with this you. understanding. Right. You know? Yeah. I like the coin analogy. That's good. So sticking with the through line here, the, the sensitive bits, um, you know, we've been doing that. We, I just finished one of our grief releases Those of you that don't know, we offer a grief release on Zoom from 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific every week. We started doing them at the beginning of the year and have done them every week and plan on doing them every week through 2023. Um, It's been a really wonderful space for learning. It's free. It's online. So it's really accessible and easy as long as you have the, the technology And it matters a lot to us to be together regularly like this because I feel like it's a big learning experience. And so I'd love to just talk to you about, let's say, last week, your most recent experience in the grief release, hear what it was like in comparison to times you've been a part of it before or what you felt about it specifically or how you feel about those kind of spaces in general. Um, and just again, so y'all know what we're talking about, essentially it's like a hour for anybody who needs to share. We offer sometimes prompts, sometimes different ways to connect to each other. There's usually music. Um, mainly though, there's just an opportunity for people to sign up on a list and share for four minutes or less. What's up, what grief they're carrying, but also anything else. And last week was particularly dense, a lot of grief and a lot of grief in a row with not a lot of breathing room. And 
it was what's needed. Like we know in these spaces, community kind of decides, but also I feel like coming out of it, what do we learn from a experience like that? How can we make it more, um, as valuable as possible and also not like result in any of us feeling worse than we did before we joined. Um, so over to you, Nick, on kind of what that was like for you and anything you're thinking about. Well, I'll just say more generally, this is coming up a lot in my life and my spaces. I lead these tea services, these the readings, but it, it opens up the first 15 minutes of it to people talking about potentially challenging things. It does not necessarily about death, but it can be sometimes, you know, um, obviously also the open mic, the you're going to die open mic, my, my right, my memoir writing workshops, um, and mm. these grief release situations. Like I'm in a lot of spaces where, okay, let's talk about shadow, shadow stuff, right? Mm -hmm. The, the good side of these spaces is 99% of the world. Like you can't talk about these things, right? It's not okay to like tell the cashier, uh, oh, I'm thinking about my mom and she died. You know, there's no mm -hmm. room for that, right? And so it creates this callous numbness potentially where you're holding it in and you're kind of generally better, but perhaps you're just dying inside and it's really overwhelming, right? And and you don't even know if the, the person next to you is feeling that way or not, right? In these spaces, you're very aware of, I, I had it just to be I won't speak too specifically, but I was in a tea service and I just opened up the hour to, I, I really just said, I just want to talk about anyone that you're missing right now. Like we're sitting here, we're drinking tea. Are you missing anyone? And this woman said, I didn't know that th this was going to be about this, but my daughter just died two months ago and mm. she was beautiful and I miss her, you know. And in that moment, I'm sure you've had this feeling many times of there's a little bit of fear of, oh, is this too much for everyone? Is this... Is this, is this okay? Can we manage this? Is this, is this really a safe space? Can I even guarantee a safe space? Um, also this gratitude of, well, sh she wants to talk about this. Like I, she probably hasn't had that many people to talk about it with, especially strangers. Um, but there's that two sides of the coin of it's wonderful that we get to do this. Th that was a good experience. There, there is a couple moments in some of my tea services where just a little bit of turbulence, a little bit of like pushback and somebody maybe said something the wrong way where I felt really disturbed. And I was like, Oh, can I, am I doing this responsibly? Is this okay? But I tell mm -hmm. myself, well, I I'm trying something that's really difficult and you do this all the time. I'm trying to open up this place that's really rare and really difficult. And if something bad happens in that place, does that re reflect on me? Is that my problem? Is that the problem of the space? Is that, does that mean I shouldn't do this? Should I just close up shop and never open up, you know? And so I want to think of that two sides of the coin, that shadow work of I, I, I'm allowing that this is here, that a negative thing or just a difficult thing can happen. And it doesn't, and I can feel bad even, but it doesn't mean uh, this is a bad thing. I shouldn't be doing this. This is so-and-so's fault. This is my fault. You know, it's, by definition, I, I, we're creating these spaces because it's okay. And things can rattle other people and even rattle us. I think the difference for me in this case was I felt somebody else in the group was maybe rattled by something somebody said in the group, in, in my tea service. Mm -hmm. And I've, I had this feeling of, okay, when it's me, that's maybe getting a little hurt. I can take that. But if it's somebody else that I invited to be vulnerable and then somebody do maybe doesn't take care of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, what have I done? You know, uh, mm -hmm. this I'm supposed to be responsible for this. And what have I done? And mm -hmm. so I'm just trying to hold all of that 
and and hold the potential that like it's not a hundred percent this is all great and this is all obviously good and we're, we hug and cry and and it's all good you know sometimes there's just like I don't know I keep thinking of the word turbulence it's just choppy water and it's just kind of difficult and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing this or you know scrap the whole thing yeah thanks um I won't add much to that because I just think it's well said and I relate to a lot of it um what I would add and so then just magnify a little bit of what you said this doing something that's uncommon and that there's something to trust in the worth of that act and knowing our continued commitment to it could only result in us being better at doing it. And I also think good practice for you and me, especially in certain kinds of spaces, but really, you know, as an organization on our end, you know, all of the spaces, but let me talk about the group, bring it back to the grief release that there is a proclaimed or a declared responsibility shared in the space. And I'm, I'm telling people more often, you're not here to have something done to you or for you, that we're doing some work together that we're all responsible for as community. And we'll do our best. I'll do my best to help us hold these things in a way that really simply doesn't have us leaving worse off than we arrived. It might keep us the same, hopefully, like that's minimally what I would want to occur, but that ideally we feel more connected, maybe lighter, more alive than we did before we joined a space like this, a space like you're describing. And knowing that part of what can happen is a learning the more we do it of how to do it, even if it is simply learning what it means to hold stuff with such spaciousness that we help move it for the person that's felt it and also don't end up just carrying it like a big new great burden on top of the other stuff we're already faced with and feeling that's hard in our own lives. And I think that takes just constant learning. And that's what I feel like the grief release is offering, offering us every week. It's a chance to say, do we need to slow down more? You know, in contrast to last week, I really felt like we needed more space in between sharing. We needed more room for people who were crying for us to be with them quietly and then also, like I know you're good at, the chance for the huge relief of laughter that also is part of what we're paying attention for as uh, an opportunity to feel love for each other in joyful ways after we've been cracked open a lot by how much we're heartbroken. And sometimes that comes really easily. And sometimes I think it takes like particular effort and I don't, I, I think even if it's really needed, it's important sometimes to trust that the community needs something that might be really weighty and still feel very hard and trust that they've chosen a kind of conversation that goes in that direction. And instead of us forcing some kind of funny light moment that really is in such contrast to what's authentically unfolding, that it doesn't serve the space. Um, but again, out of this conversation continually in our work, I'm just like, how do we do this better? How do we all do it better together? Not just me. Like, how do we all make room? How much more breathing is needed? How much more like feeling into our body is needed? How much more heart attention is needed? 
Um, and so I just really relate to everything you shared and am feeling it a lot today. Today's grief release felt like a pretty sweet balance, good catharsis and expression of grief. And there was just a lot of loving connectedness and laughter too, with a lot of good music, music always, always, always like, I know you use it in the same way is, is such a good relieving, settling place to decompress and be held by. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Thanks everybody for listening. If you want to check out that grief release, all you got to do is go to our website, yg2d.com, check out our events. It's the top event because it's always available every week. Also, we got a lot of events going on more than ever. If you're in Phoenix, Arizona area, we'll be there in April. So come on out. We're doing an open mic at Changing Hands Bookstore, our You're Going to Die Poetry Pros and Everything Goes. Please come on out. If you know anybody in Phoenix or the Phoenix area, let them know that we'll be there. We're actually going to be there for the Innocence Network Conference, a part of our prison program, Alive Inside, doing a restorative justice open mic at that conference for the second year in a row. Um, so we wanted to make it count with uh, one evening just being with general community. So let your Phoenix people know. Also, we're back to Berkeley. We just had our first Berkeley, California show, and we'll be doing another one that's more of a concert with poetry, reading, and music on April 20th. Also, while we're in Phoenix, we're going to still be doing our San Francisco You're Going to Die Poetry Pros and Everything Goes. And guess who your host is for that night, everybody? Gallagher. Gallagher. Is he still alive? No. (laughs) That's why it's crazy. (laughs) Nope. uh, Almost the next best thing, everybody. Nick Jaina will be hosting uh, that evening at the Lost Church. So anyway, all these events available on our website. Just go to YG2D.com. Check it out. Stay connected there. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for all your support. Thanks for continuing to listen. Share the episodes with your friends. And also shoot us a note. If you want to find out more about what we're up to, you can email us at connect at yg2d.com. If you want to share something for the show, thoughts on the podcast, maybe even like words that you wonder might matter for our listeners, send it over. Like connect at yg2d.com is the way to do it. Otherwise, so glad you're here. So glad you're alive. Thanks for letting us be in your ear for this little tiny moment of a lifetime. Bye-bye, everybody. Until next time.